And this is perhaps the biggest change in the book. We've talked about this several times, that as we go through the structure, that there are pivot points. So there's a section of what Paul says, then he moves on to the next thing and the next thing. And chapters one through eight were a very distinct section, which had about four subsections. Then we got into chapter nine, 10, and 11, which is itself its own big section, and it had a breakdown in there too. But really, chapters one through 11 can all be lumped together under the heading of doctrinal matters in the book of Romans. 1 through 11 have been discussing theology. Paul's been explaining what we believe, what is true about the gospel, and then in the last few chapters about Israel and how they relate to the church. Chapter 12 to the end is the second major division of Romans, the biggest division, where it focuses on application, practical living for us. This is very common in Paul's letters, and it only makes sense. Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about doctrine. Ephesians 4 through 6 is all about application. Romans is the same way. Now that we've learned everything we've learned about God and about salvation, here's how we ought to live. This is moral instruction. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about love and compassion. We're going to talk about government. We're going to talk about disagreements of opinion among Christians as we go through here. Very down-to-earth practical living. And I imagine the home fellowships will get an awful lot of uh, practical lessons out of this. And many people would rather just focus on this stuff. Why did we need to spend 11 chapters laying down what we believe if it's all building to this anyway? Why don't we just jump straight to the application, tell me what to do, and then I'll just do it. And there are some churches that do exactly that. They're not going to spend any time talking about doctrine, not going to spend any time talking about theology because it's boring and nobody wants to hear it. And they just want to get straight to the, here's what you're supposed to do. But that's not the example laid for us in the Bible. Doctrine lays the foundation for application. God, even in his providence, was willing to lay down hundreds and thousands of years of lessons before moving to the ultimate point of the cross. God needs to make sure that we get it before we start to live it. And the gospel, as we'll see today, in all of its beauty, in all of its profundity, it's the basis for our behavior. We act the way we act because of how Jesus acted on the cross and in coming out of the empty tomb. The gospel is the basis for our behavior. Or at least it ought to be. Because I'm going to tell you, most professing Christians do not live this way. Most people who say they are Christians, who go to church, who tithe, who do all the right things, they do not live as though the gospel were true in every area and facet of it. Now, some of that is hypocrisy, people that say they're Christians and they're really not. But very much of that is people unwilling to give certain areas of their life over to the gospel for one reason or another. Because the demands of the gospel, it's so big, it's so heavy. Everything that Jesus and the apostles and the prophets have said is so intense That if you were to actually adhere to it, if you were to actually live it out, actually do everything that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John have told us to do, you could only call that radicalism. And this is the word we're going to key on today. Radical. What is a radical? Here's my definition. Someone who refuses to be influenced by convention or by pressure. Now we hear that, that doesn't sound so bad. That sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon, doesn't it? 
Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Don't care what they say. But that is not the way it often pans out. Somebody who truly doesn't care what other people say is a dangerous person. And I use that as a neutral term because it can be good, but it also can be very bad. Somebody who is willing to stand up against all of society, who is willing to throw off every kind of convention, that person is dangerous because you can't buy them, you can't control them, you can't manipulate them, you can't force them to do what you want them to do. And when you live the way Jesus tells you to live, the only way to describe it is radical. Extreme is a word we might use. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 25. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So we start and say, no more me. However I live, I have nothing to do with it anymore. Take up his cross, meaning take up a willingness to die. Live as though you're already dead and then follow me. Imagine if somebody was saying that to your kids in high school. If you really want to live a good life, you've got to stop caring about yourself. You've got to be ready to die and do everything I tell you. Somebody like that, you might want locked up, wouldn't you? Or maybe nailed to a cross. This is what Jesus said. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, what's the difference? Jesus is the son of God. He's the only one who has the right and the authority to say things like that to us. But you still must recognize he has said things like that to us. Jesus makes demands on the Christian life. And everything I'm saying today is not new, it's old. Paul is going to call us in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to live life the way Jesus lived life. And that's the only hope for you. And it's the only hope for the whole world. And I'm going to preach this message as I would want it preached to me. As we look at these verses that you've heard a million times before, but must be heard afresh, especially in the days in which we live. Let us read the whole thing. It's only two verses. We'll read the whole thing so we know where we're going. And then we'll go back and, and go about a phrase at a time. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, help me to speak this as the oracles of God, as Peter said. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. We'll start there. These verses serve as a pivot. This is a transition point between the doctrinal and the practical sections of Romans. He says, therefore. This is probably the, the biggest therefore in the entirety of Romans. Because he's not just looking back a couple verses. He's looking back to the whole thing. He's causing us to look back not just on Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is on the salvation of God. The last thing Paul mentioned was that God's wisdom and his knowledge and his plan of salvation is so wise and wonderful. That's the immediate context, but he's really looking back on everything that he said so far. Therefore, by the mercies of God, because of God's mercy, let's say because of the gospel, because of the fact that we're not saved by works, but by God's mercy. And he's going to begin to 
give us a new section here. So let's take a quick moment. I know we've done this several times, but I want this to be so driven into your brain that by the time we're done with Romans, you'll never forget this. What have we learned so far about God's mercy and about the gospel? First of all, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about condemnation. These words all rhyme. You've got to know them. Condemnation. This is the bad news. We are all sinners under the wrath of God. Chapter 1, verse 18 begins with, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. That's the truth, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against sin. And you say, well, why is that bad news? Because you are a sinner. Which means the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against you. And Paul spends all of chapter 2 explaining that it doesn't matter what your background is, what your ethnicity is, what your religion is. Everybody is a sinner. Sin comes out of you. It doesn't come at you. You do wrong things because there is wrong living inside of you. And that sin provokes the wrath of God. God's wrath is not just him being grumpy. It is his divine justice against wickedness. And no one is outside of that. Romans 3.23, famous verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's terrible news because the penalty for sin is death forever in hell. That's the state of things. And if you are not a Christian, if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's where you stand today. You're lucky to be here because God's going to tell you how to get out of it. The second step from chapters 3 through 5 Second half of three through five is called justification. Condemnation, justification. God offers forgiveness because of Jesus Christ. This is the first step of the good news. The bad news is that we're all sinners destined for hell. The good news is that God has made a way to forgive us of those sins. Because God loved us so much. So what God did was because of his love. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was not just a man. He was God, very God, who came. He taught us a better way. He showed us what was true, evidenced who he was by countless signs and wonders. And then he died on the cross. He was crucified unjustly, unfairly, as a sacrifice for sins. Because he was man, he could die for you and me. Because he was God, he could die for everybody. And the grave could not hold him down. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And that is proof that our forgiveness is available. How do you get it? By faith alone. Just by coming to God and receiving it. It's a free gift, but you've got to step up and get it. You get emails, countless free gifts and free things you get. But if you don't make the phone call, you don't show up to pick it up. It doesn't do you any good. But we've been justified. We are receiving the righteousness of Christ. So no longer does God look at you and see your sin. Now he sees Jesus' righteousness. You've been justified, declared righteous because of the gospel. Number three, sanctification. This is the present ongoing aspect of the Christian life. Condemnation, we are dead in our sins. Justification, we have been forgiven because of Jesus. Sanctification, day by day, God works in you to become more and more righteous. 
We are filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live in imitation of the resurrection. We die to our sin, but then we rise to walk in righteousness. God sends his spirit to live inside of you, to change you from the inside out. Yeah, your flesh is still full of sin, but your heart is being renewed day by day by day. So you've been declared righteous. Now God's going to make you righteous. He says you are no longer under obligation to serve your flesh. You don't have to sin anymore. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. And number four, second half of chapter eight is glorification. This is the future aspect of salvation. Someday we will see God in glory. When we were under condemnation, our destination was hell. But when we are justified and we are sanctified, we look forward to the day when we will live forever in heaven with God to be glorified. When you die, you will be welcomed into God's presence, not driven out but welcomed as his child. He's going to glorify your body. Sin will no longer tempt you. You'll live forever. That's the hope that we're waiting for, that Romans 8, 18 says, you shouldn't even compare that to the trials and struggles you're going through right now. It's that wonderful. Condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification. That's Romans. That's the gospel. As I said at the beginning of this book, Romans is the most systematic, detailed picture of what the gospel means. The gospels tell us the story, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The other letters give us various reasons and ways of approaching it. Romans just lays out in great detail, what does this all mean? So that's what he means when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... I appeal to you, therefore, because of justification, sanctification, glorification. He's going to ask us to alter our behavior. Do you believe all that? Do you believe that? Come on, somebody. Do y'all believe all that? I hope somebody does. The fact that, that God sent his only son to die for your sins and forgive you and give you his righteousness and you have a hope. And now even when you do sin, you've got grace to rise up and keep on trying. That's good news. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, remember all of that. And we just did. So he says, I appeal to you. What is he appealing for? Shall we keep reading? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because of all that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It says, because of all that, because of justification, sanctification, glorification, because of the gospel, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We use a lot of different words and phrases to describe what it means to convert and to be saved. We say very often, I gave my life to Christ. That's a great phrase. We use it all the time, but let's just take a minute and think about that. I'm giving my life over to God, over to Jesus. That's what Paul tells us to do, to present your bodies. And this is a very cool little verse here. Paul is using priestly language. He's using very religious, ritualistic, liturgical language. He says, present your bodies as a sacrifice. 
What kind of sacrifice? A holy and acceptable sacrifice. We've been going through Leviticus on Wednesday nights. We finished off the second half of Exodus, which talks about the kinds of sacrifices that will be acceptable before God. They have to be holy. They can't be like anything else. They have to be acceptable, meaning they have to be part of what is required in the law. So Paul says, you offer your sacrifice, which is your body, as a holy and acceptable one, and then he says, that is your spiritual worship. That word for worship is latreia. And this was a word in Greek that was used to describe what priests did when they were in their temples. It wasn't just worship. It was the forms and the ceremonies and the traditions of worship. So we've been looking at the latreia of the book of Leviticus, where Paul or Moses tells the people, lay your hands on the animal, cut the throat of the animal, drain the blood, pile these pieces on the altar, burn the rest and consume this. Then take the blood into the holy place and sprinkle it. That's all the latreia. It's the, the liturgy. Those words are actually related to each other a little bit. So he's using priestly language. You're offering a sacrifice to God. Very briefly, I know some of the older translations don't have spiritual worship. They have something like reasonable service. Worship service are the same word. But it hinges on how you translate the word logikane for spiritual. Logikane is where we get our word logical from. You can hear it, logikane. It comes from the word logos or logos. You've heard of Jesus being called the logos, the word of God. So most often in Greek, when you use the word logikane, you meant logical, rational. The Greeks, of course, were famous philosophers and put a lot of emphasis on the mind and how they thought. It's a little different emphasis in Jewish Literature. So men like Philo, for example, who were Jewish philosophers during this time, they, they used that term logikane, logical, to describe the spirit of a person. And so that is why, in most cases, this is translated that way. And especially because you can see in context, Paul isn't so much here talking about rationality and logic. He's talking about worship. I just talked about the latreia, right? Walking through the ceremonies here. Although that is still an appropriate way to translate it. So this is one of those cases where uh, I don't think either translation adds or takes away anything from what he's trying to say here, but I did want to explain why there, there was a difference. And sometimes you have a word, you're like, well, it's really kind of hard to pick one word to communicate it in English. I will say this at the very least, for the Greeks and the Romans and the Hebrews and in the Bible, when they talk about the mind, they don't divide it from the heart and the seat of emotions like we tend to do. We say logic in opposition to emotion and heartfelt things. They didn't do that so much. They didn't pit spirit against rationality. So that's why I think the translators put it that way, but... In any case, we're going to continue. Offering up a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. And what is acceptable? If you can only offer to God what he will accept, what is acceptable? Your body offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What happens to sacrifices? They burn. They die. The first step of every sacrifice in the Old Testament was lay your hand on the animal and cut its throat. Now, of course, Paul is not calling us to die because what does he say? A living sacrifice. You're not going to die, but you are to live the rest of your life as a Christian as if you were being sacrificed and offered up to God. 
That sheep, that bull, that goat, when it walks into the tabernacle courts, has lost its rights. You're not getting out of there. You're going to die. You're going to be sacrificed. And that is the same standard to which we are called as Christians. Paul puts this very well in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have renounced my whole life. It's just Jesus now. And the life that I now live in the flesh, so obviously he's still alive. He's using figurative language. But I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For a Christian to do what God has called them to do is to live your life as if you're already dead. That means you're not worried about hanging on to things. You're not worried about accomplishing things. You're not worried about what other people are going to think because I'm already dead. Pastor Troy Warner, who's my father and one of our elders here, he reminded me of a story. There was a man uh, who has in a ministry in some Islamic country. I cannot exactly remember which one it was, but um, they, this American group had gone over there and this pastor was leading them around. But the pastor that was leading them around and they were going, handing out pamphlets and talking to people in the streets. And he said, you know, they came to find out this man had a price on his head. They'd put out a fatwa for him to be killed if anybody saw him. And the American told this pastor, he said, I don't know if you really should be out here with us, man. This is really dangerous for you. And I, I don't want anything to happen because of us. And this, this pastor, this Christian pastor turned and said, this is the problem with you Americans. You don't realize that we're already dead. You're counting your life too dear. I'm already dead. So if they take my life in actuality, it's just going to become real what's already been true in my heart. It's a strong rebuke that we need to hear. If you want to receive salvation, and most of you all have and do, the price is your old life. You have to die. Everything's got to go. What did Jesus say? Take up your cross. Be a living sacrifice. All of this death imagery. The old man's got to go. The old woman's got to go. If you want the benefits of salvation, you've got to pay the price, which is to identify with Christ in his death. And the life you now live is only for him. Can you see how this is by the mercies of God? This is looking back to the gospel. Just as Jesus died and rose again, so you have to die and rise again. That's why we baptize. We put people under the water and bring them out. It's a picture of death and rebirth. You don't have a life anymore. Jesus said, if you desire to find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. Your preferences don't matter anymore. I'd rather not. So? Jesus didn't want to go to the cross either. Remember that? Lord, if there is any other way, let's do that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Your culture doesn't matter anymore. Paul says, you know what? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, but I'll be anything for anybody if it means they can be saved. Your ideas don't matter anymore. Well, I've got some theories. Don't, just don't. Well, I have some degrees. That's probably worse. You've been so educated, you don't know how to be like a little child anymore. Why do you think it's always poor, uneducated people who get saved the most? Because they don't have any pride that they've got to work over first. Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for a proud man, an educated man, an accomplished man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not impossible, but it's hard. Because it's death. If you don't have anything to lose, then you're already there. 
Is that radical? Yes, it is. Are there some people that probably wouldn't want their children taught that? I know there are, because I used to teach teenagers, and I had some that didn't want me teaching that. Not many, but I had a few. It's radical. It's also anti-Western. And I know we're living in a day where we're trying to save our culture and stand on our culture. But listen, and the West is all about radical individualism. Sorry, that's not Christianity. Christianity is about losing your individuality in the person of Jesus Christ. To where who you are and what you want doesn't matter anymore. It's also non-optional. Well, I'll be a Christian, but I'm not going to go for all that stuff. That doesn't work that way. I've got to warn you because Jesus said many will come in that last day and say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he's expressed his will and it's radical. We've got to know this as we move into the application of chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 because Paul's going to ask us to do some things that we don't want to do. But you're already dead. We only live to serve him. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me out of gratitude. Look at verse 2 now. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Life as a sacrifice is different than everybody else's life. And Paul describes this change in stark terms here. He says, do not be conformed to this world. That is, don't be like them anymore, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We are not to act or think like anybody else, like the world. And that word for world is actually the word ion. It's where we get the word eon from. It can be translated age, as in, do not be conformed to this age. And either one applies, it can, it can mean the same thing, but you get the point. Don't be like everybody else. Don't be like your times. People shouldn't look at you and say, man, that, that person is definitely a man of their time. I hope not. But instead, you are to be transformed. Every age and every culture has its priorities. It has its morals. It has its goals. But the Christian, in every case, is to be different. We are to be different, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to taste the king's delicacies, who refused to bow down to the golden image. And when they said, you're not allowed to pray anymore, he opened the window and stood there where everybody could see him. We're not to be like them. We are to have a mind and a heart that is renewed by God, transformed from its wickedness. Now, here's where we start to get the pushback, because we say, yes, well, I mean, if you were over in India, maybe, but this is the United States. I mean, we, you know, we're not doing as well as we used to, but I mean, this, this is kind of a Christian place, you know, and we've got a lot of good things. We've made a lot of scientific advances, and we, you know, we really have a great place to be, and so we might need some tweaks, but certainly not transformation. That just shows our own arrogance, doesn't it? John put it very plainly in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Ready for this? Do not love the world. You can go home and spend a week of devotions just meditating on that. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So if you immediately say, well, what about this redeemable thing? What about this good thing? John says, no, none of that is worth saving. Is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, of course, John 3, 16, God so loved the world. And then here, 1 John, he tells us not to love the world. I hope you can, you can see what he's saying here. God so loved the world as in a place full of people that need salvation. John is telling us not to love the world as a system of corruption that is overseen by Satan. Bible calls Satan the God of this age. The little g, God of this age. He's the one people are following after. So if you look at the trajectory of culture, it's not being guided by God. It's being guided by the devil. And John tells us, don't love it. Don't be nostalgic for it. Don't lust after it. Don't look at it with a longing gaze like Lot's wife running out of Sodom. It's not to be an object of admiration for us. Are there things in it that are good? Yes, of course. But we are not to be people that love the world and want to be just like the world. But we are always tempted to live as products of our age. Everybody in every culture. It's not unique to America. It's not unique to 2022. It's everybody everywhere. We go do ministry in Nepal. We have to teach them you can't be like every other Nepali. Come here. You can't be like every other American. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. There was just released something called the 2022 American Worldview Inventory. This was a study produced by Arizona Christian University, presented by George Barna. If you're familiar with the Barna Group, they pro provide uh, Christian statistics and research and things like that. And this new study that came out this year, it evaluated issues of purpose and calling. So do you agree with the Bible when it says about purpose and calling? Family and the value of life. So think abortion and marriage and things like that. God and creation. Faith practices. Not sure exactly what that is. Sin and salvation. So that's how do you get saved? Humanity. So people's, are people naturally good or are they naturally evil? Lifestyle. And the Bible as a standard for morality. Those eight issues was evaluated. And this 2022 American Worldview Inventory found that according to this standard, only 37% of pastors in America have a biblical worldview. 37%. One out of every three rounded up. And if you look at the breakdown, that included 41% of senior pastors have a biblical worldview, 28% of assistant pastors, 13% of teaching pastors, we don't really have that office, but some will, 12% of youth and children's pastors, and 4% of executive pastors, meaning guys that handle the administration and the building and the budget and things like that. The largest worldview they found among these people was syncretism which is taking a blend of lots of different ideas and lots of different theories and mixing them with the gospel. That was 62% of pastors in America. I have no further details on exactly what the breakdown was here. Obviously, you know, some denominations are going to be more heavy on this than others. Uh, my dad and I actually sent an inquiry to them to get a breakdown of the survey so that we can know exactly what kind of questions were asked. But can you believe that? 37% of pastors 
have a biblical worldview. That means two out of every three churches in the United States, the pastor has compromised his belief and his doctrine. 4%. That means one out of every 20 guys making business decisions for the church actually believes this stuff. 19 out of every 20 don't. 12% of student pastors, youth, children's ministry. That means you have a slightly better than 10% chance of handing your kid off to a teacher who actually believes this stuff. So when people come to me and say, why would you plant another church? Don't you know that there's already churches out here? Yes. And one out of every three of them is doing the right thing. And this isn't even looking at how it's lived out. This is just the belief willing to put it in an anonymous survey. Now, these statistics are alarming, but I'll tell you, they're not necessarily surprising for me. My dad sent me that. He couldn't believe it. Leave it. George Barna wrote this great article where he's like, I was shocked at how far it had slipped during this same survey from year to year. But I wasn't surprised. We know this, don't we? The church is compromised. Of course, between 60 and 70% of those pastors were solid on calling and purpose as taught in the Bible. Well, of course, because that lines up with what Americans already think. But the farther away you get from what the zeitgeist says and what everybody else believes, the more the pastors moved away. So we believe in our own calling and purpose, and good, we should. There are some that are disproportionate in their emphasis on that, but it's an important teaching. But then we're soft on abortion. Yes, God has a plan and a purpose for everybody, but you know, I don't know if every, every child deserves to have a life. How does that jive together? There's a calling and a plan and a purpose for everybody, but if you want to kill your child, that's fine. Doubting God's creation. Did God make the world? Well, I don't think it matters. Oh, yes, it does. Believing in many ways of salvation. Why would we do that? Because we don't believe in sin anymore. I don't believe that people are, are basically evil. Well, then where does it come from? Have you had children before? You don't have to teach them to be bad. You have to teach them to be good. It's a constant fight. And we feel like we hardly ever succeed. They didn't learn that. It came out of them. Oh, but we stand so strong in all manner of sexual deviance. I don't know what I think about sin. I don't know what I believe about creation. I don't know what I believe about family. But I'll stand strong on the rights of gay and lesbian individuals in the church. I'll support children having sex changes and transgender nonsense and all that. I have a very strong opinion on these things. We're inclusive. We're tolerant. What do you believe about creation? Well, you know, it's really kind of a matter of opinion. We're so wacky. We're so off base. And I'm not coming at you. I'm showing where we stand. James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You want to go out there and have everybody at work say, oh, you're one of those Christians I can get with. You're all right. Oh, this pastor, see, he can hang out with celebrities and be famous, and I don't have anybody in mind, I'm just saying, right? Oh, look, they see this, this, they're not pushy, they're not angry. We're going to be friends. James says, if you do that, it's like you're cheating on your wife. You hate God. I don't hate. Yes, you do if you're living that way. Because they stand against everything that God stands for. 
when these Christians that want to be on the team with all these people that hate God, hate the church, hate the Bible, hate Christians, rant and rave against the church all day long, and they want to come over and say, hey, I get it, man. Hey, I get it, you know, but it's not so bad. You're not going to win their friendship. You're going to win God's anger. And you know, that kind of worldview that says, I'm, I'm kind of half and half, you know, I believe the Bible, but you know, God just said some things that we just know better now. We know we've learned, we know better now, and I don't know if we can say all of that's true. That worldview will change and save nobody. It's soft, it's boring, and therefore it's impotent. Nobody's going to be attracted by a Christian church that is basically a worse version of what they can get in the world. That's what happened. I was a youth pastor right in the heyday of the entertain your kids movement. Every, and what happened? All those kids that we ran that experiment on. They all got to college and balled up their religion and threw it over their shoulder. Didn't work. Why? Because you weren't challenging them. You were offering them like soft serve religion. Let's not talk about blood. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about death. Let's just talk about hope. Listen, my friend, if you don't have sin and blood and death, you don't get what the hope's all about. They're talking about hope too. Well, that's based on nothing. Well, if you don't give them what it's based on, as far as they know, it's based on nothing. So why would I stick with you and all your weird rules? You want to know what the fastest growing religion in America is? Islam. Why? Because they do not care what you think. They stand up in front of people and say, this is wrong, this is right, and this is what you've got to do. And if you don't like it, I don't care. This is what we're going to do. We're going to take over the world. We're going to renounce this old life. We're not going to stand for this any longer. We're going to pick up rifles and march on the city and blow people up because this is what's right. And people hear that and it stirs their spirit. It's like, finally, somebody believes in something. And here we are in the church saying, don't ask too much. They can't sit still for long messages. People don't want the pastor talking about hard issues. They don't want him stepping up. And then off they go. That's why it's so attractive to many. Remember when, when ISIS was having its moment? And all these people from England and America and Australia were flying to Syria to join up? And I'm not talking about people that had an Arab heritage. I'm talking about all American people, men and women, white and black and Native American. They were going to take up arms for Muhammad. People growing up in church. Well, you know, we shouldn't hold them up as an example. I'm not. I'm holding them up as a reproach to you. They, ha they have their rules and they stand by them and they don't care what you think. Christians care way too much about what people think. Well, if we say that, some people might leave. Well, if they're going to leave by insisting on the Bible, then they'd better leave and get it over with. We weep and we lament over how many people left the church during COVID. Can I just tell you something? Most of those people probably should have left a long time ago. I know that's a hard thing to say. But they were, that's, that's the 19% of executive pastors that don't believe any of this stuff. And we kind of knew it, didn't we? We were preaching for so long. What's up with our churches? Why are we doing all this stuff? Well, it come to find out that at the first major point of pressure, they all left. Because they were never part of us in the first place. You read the demands of Christ and the resolve of Paul. It sounds so alien to us. But that's the standard. 
Real Christianity is radical Christianity. Let me say it again. Real Christianity is radical Christianity. I'm not today asking you to do anything extra than what you already know. I'm just asking you to do what you know you're supposed to do already. I'm not saying, well, I got three more decades to get this right. You know why I think most people are so angry and so upset in the church right now? And I hope this doesn't apply to anybody here. I see so many Christians that are angry at the cultural Marxist or angry at Islam or angry at this group or that. And they're, they're desperate and they're fighting to get it back. And you wonder where all these people have been. And you wonder why they're acting in such a non-Christ-like way to fight for these things. Here's what I think. I think that they are upset that they have been inconvenienced by wickedness. Look at this. Now I have to take a stand. Before it just kind of slipped by. I didn't like it, but it never bothered me. Now they're in my face and I have to do something about it. I never wanted to go on the missions field and now here I am living in one. And what are we fighting and scrambling and voting and marching for to get things back to the way they were? When? When we were divorcing at 50%? Wow, well, I got to get rid of transgenderism. And what? Go back to just gay? Go back to just fornicating and living together? Go back to adultery? Go back to when exactly? When it didn't bother you or affect you? Sorry, those days are gone. If you wanted to live in the days, halcyon days of old, when nobody bothered you for being a believer and the world kind of at least made a pretense of following Jesus, you're not living in those days and they're not coming back. They're not. Let me liberate you from that. We have been called to be soldiers. One of my favorite movies is the movie Miracle. Have you seen this one? This is the hockey movie about the 1980 U.S. hockey team that beat the Soviet Union and the miraculous win. There's a scene in that movie where they lose a game, a pregame, that they definitely should have, should have won. And so rather than letting them go to the locker room, the coach takes them out on the ice after the game with all the fans still there and has them start skating suicides back and forth. You know that, that drill? Back to this line and then back, and then back to this line and back. And he makes them keep on going and going and going until they all start getting sick, and they shut the lights off, and he makes them keep going. And he has a line that he says to them. He says, this cannot be a team of common men. Because common men go nowhere. You have to be uncommon. That's our word for today, Christians. We cannot be a church of common men and women. We have to be uncommon, radical in Christ Jesus. You can't just do the same thing we've always done. It's not Working, it never did work. Because even when it was the dominant way, everything was slipping and sliding, and now it's finally caught up with us. Now, for evangelical Christians, this is not a belief problem. We still believe the same things. It's a behavior problem. It's time to wake up. If you've not got this already, you've got to get this. And I, I say this especially with kindness to those of you who are, are older in this congregation. It's, those days are gone. This is not a Christian country anymore, if it ever was. It's not. Your kids are not being raised in a way where you can just send them out and hope they'll turn out okay. The wolves are in the sheepfold. The fox is in the hen house. 
And we cannot just sit back and try to act like it's just the way it used to be and it's going to be all right if we just hold on. No, it might be all right, but it's not going to be just by closing your eyes and, and holding really tight to the sides and saying, oh, just wait till it's over. If you don't believe me, take a look at England. Take a look at Scotland. Scotland was just categorized, if I'm not mistaken, by Voice of the Martyrs as an unreached people group. Scotland. John Knox. Alexander McLaren. An unreached people group. In the same category as Nigeria and Burma. If you think like everybody else, beware. Jesus said, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. When everybody talks about how this church is okay, and we're, they're doing all right. Yeah, I hate Christians, but they're okay. Jesus said, woe unto you, because that's what they said to the false prophets. What happened to the real prophets? They got their heads chopped off. They got their limbs ripped off by wild horses. They got their skin flayed off. They were crucified. They were beaten. They were thrown off mountains. They were stoned. And that's what we are to be is those kind of people. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul brings it back. What, what, is, the, what is the ethical mandate for Christians? Do the will of God. Find out what God wants and do that. And that's what we're supposed to be chasing after. Now you say, how do I know? Well, he says there, by testing, you may discern. I thought this was an interesting ESV translation. It's only covering one single word, which is dokimazo. The old translations had that you may prove. Now, some of the old hymns have this word. Back then, to prove something meant to demonstrate it, right? To show that it's true. We use prove and we think of like scientific, uh, you know, experiments and math and things like that. So that's probably why they went with a different thing here. But it means to test and prove something. Like with metal, like with fine gems, to test and prove that it's real. Prove yourself, you might say. Prove what is the will of God. Point being, the more you submit to God and let him renew your mind and change the way you think and change the way you live, the farther you go down that narrow road, the more you will discover his perfect will for your life. So many people, they want to know, what's God's will? I want to know what he's, what he's sending me to do and what he, where, where he wants me to go and who he wants me to marry. Are you doing any of the other stuff? Are, are you obeying any of those commandments? The more you do that, the more you will prove and find what is the will of God for your life. Sometimes there are blessings that God is ready to give you, but you're not willing to pay the price. And when you come right up to it and you're right there to receive what God has for you and he tells you what it costs... You say, all right, I'll live with the consequences of not having that. Whether you do it consciously or unconsciously. And this is where we start to make it personal. Enough about them. We get way too many them messages, don't we? Look what they're doing. Can you believe what they're doing in this country, in that church, in these people? Let's talk about you. Let's talk about me for a minute. Are you proving what is the will of God for your life? Are you living out only what is good and acceptable and perfect? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus is speaking to the Apostle John. So these are the words of Christ, post-resurrection, post-ascension. 
And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold. I wish you were so on fire that everybody knew about you or that you were so ice cold that I could at least point to something and say, stop doing that. Instead, you're right in the middle. You're lukewarm. You're balanced. And it makes me sick, Jesus said. You want to say, well, radicalism isn't for everybody. It's for Christians. Made Jesus sick. I'm going to spit you. The word is Vomit. I'm going to vomit you out. You make me sick. God looks at halfway Christians and it makes him sick. He says you need to be zealous and repent. Be zealous. You are commanded in scripture to be zealous, to be passionate, to be fiery. And if you're not, why not exactly? Well, my personality, enough with your personality already. We think way too much of our own personalities and our own struggles and our own trials. How about... Christ delivers you from all that stuff. You have no faith. You have no faith to overcome your own personality. How are you going to overcome it when somebody's putting a gun in your face and say, deny Christ or I'm going to blow your head off? Or holds a gun to your child or your wife. Well, when that day comes, I'll be ready. No, you won't. If you're idolizing yourself now, you're not going to turn from your idol in the heat of the moment. Lukewarm. And why were they lukewarm? Why were they halfway? Because they had everything they needed. They were rich. They had money. The budget was good. They were clothed. Everything was looking great. And God says, you're not, though. You're wretched. You're, you're naked. You're poor. In my economy, and that's the only one that really counts, isn't it? Lukewarm Christians. Made Jesus sick. And what we often do to justify our lukewarmness is we find somebody who's doing it wrong. We point at them and we say, can you believe the excess that person is going into? There are some people, their entire ministries to find Christians that are doing it wrong and talk about them. Ministries. I don't know who it helps exactly, but they call it a ministry. Look at this group. Look how excessive they are with the spiritual gifts. Look how excessive this group is in their evangelism. Look how excessive this group is in their theology. Or the way they build their church is just unseemly. And we, we do that in order to say, not like, I'm a well-balanced, in-between, not-crazy kind of Christian. God doesn't like that. That's not approved by God. 
God loves to use excessive people. Have you noticed? We want to come at the, first, at the Corinthian church and say, look at all the horrible things going on. Yes, there were a lot of horrible things going on, but in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul commends them. They were going nuts with the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues, but in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Paul says, I commend you that you come short in no spiritual gift. The problems of the Corinthian church were the problems of a living church. It was alive. And because it was alive, it had problems. Dead churches, what are you supposed to do with that? You know what God does? He removes the lampstand and he places in something else. At least excessive people are full of faith. The Lord goes, as long as you're moving, I can work with that. Have you discovered that God will overlook all manner of sin for somebody who has faith? This evangelist that leads millions of people to Christ, and you come to find out they had some weird money thing going on the side, you say, God, why didn't you stop that? Because at least he's moving. At least he's doing it. At least they're praying for the sick. At least they're trying to lead people to Christ. At least they want to build something great for God. Radicals are the ones who move the ball forward. Consider the hippies during the Jesus movement, in which Calvary Chapel came. They showed up the whole church. The dirty, communist, drug-addled hippies got saved and took all of that hippie drive and energy and willingness to leave everything and willingness to say no to culture. And God filled it with the Holy Spirit and he changed everything. And yet we want to come, well, really, we need to get back to balance and get back to, okay, yes, be, fine, be balanced, but don't be lukewarm. We want to curb excess, but I would rather us be excessive than be dead as a doornail. Amen. Amen. You know what radical means? Radical means just doing what everybody else is supposed to be doing. Do you even pray regularly? I mean, do you? Not every now and then I agree it would be a good idea to pray. No, do you pray? Do you abstain from filthy media that's filling up your mind with all kinds of sin? Have you forgiven everybody who sinned against you? That's basic. And if you haven't done those things, then don't start sticking your finger in the face of somebody that's going over the overboard a little bit. You will only find the plan of God for your life as you step out and become radicalized. I want to close with a story from Judges chapter 15. You know the story. Samson was the judge at this time. Y'all know a little something about Samson, I would expect. Samson was the Nazarite from birth that God used and gave this incredible strength and tore up the Philistines over and over again. And there's a story in Judges chapter 15 where he goes to the place called Etam. And the Philistines show up, thousands of Philistines show up and they say to the citizens of Etam, you deliver Samson to us or we're going to kill you. And they go to Samson and they complain to Samson. They say, why did you come here? Why did you come? Don't you know that these people rule over us? Every time you show up, you just make trouble. And now we're afraid. And they, Samson agreed to be delivered over to them. But as they traveled, when, he, when he, they caught up with the rest of the column at a place called Lehi, Samson ripped the ropes off that had bound him up, grabbed the first thing he could, which was the jawbone of a dead donkey, and killed a thousand Philistines by himself. 
And you look at these people that were like, why are you always bringing all this trouble on us? Every time you show up, things start to go crazy. Well, they didn't get to see a thousand Philistines killed with a jawbone. And Samson had all kinds of problems. Samson didn't keep any of his Nazarite vows. But God goes, I'm not worried about that. He's a radical guy. You got to know how to deal with radical people. Normal people are always coming up to God's radicals and saying, would you just stop? Every time you do that, I've got to answer tough questions. Whenever you show up, you only bring trouble. Don't you know that this is the way things are and they're not going to change? But radicals step up and do things like grab donkeys' jawbones and start swinging. <laughs> radicals say, Jesus, can I get out of the boat and walk on the water with you? Peter, don't ask him that. That's presumptuous. That's pre God never said we could do that. I want to. All right, come on out. All right, here we go. And then there's the rest of the 11 disciples sitting in the boat watching ha that happen. These are dark days. The Philistines are upon us, aren't they? Amen. At least in our country, it's never been darker for the church which means it's time for the new wine to come and burst those old wineskins. God's going to raise up people like Samson that we look at and sometimes we go, oh, why did he have to say that? Why did he have to do that? We're going to look at women like, <laughs> like Jael who let, lured the, king, uh, the general into her tent and put him to sleep and then hammered a tent peg through his head. Raise up people like John the Baptist that didn't eat like normal people and lived in the desert and had crazy hair. And when the religious leaders showed up, he said, get out of here. I don't want you here messing everything up. You snakes, you bunch of snakes, get on out of here. I'm not baptizing you. John, that's a Pharisee. I don't care. You're a bunch of hypocrites, and I hope you never come back. John, you can't do that to people. People like Peter, Lord, if it be you, let me come out to you on the water. People like Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Jesus said in Luke 5.38 that when the new wine comes, the old wineskins that are rigid and brittle and lukewarm are going to bust up into pieces. And y'all, that's what's coming. Let me tell you, I, this is what I firmly believe. God is going to send revival on this country. And it's going to out Pentecost, Pentecost. But it's also going to be a test. Because the Lord is going to see, is there anything left in this people? Is there any reason why I shouldn't judge this nation? When I revive their church, what are they going to do with it? Is it going to be a revival of culture and standards and, and revival of the way things used to be? Or are they willing to move on to the new thing that I'm going to do? And the danger will be that it becomes a Josiah revival, that when Josiah dies, they go right back to the things they were doing before. That's the danger. The Lord is looking for living sacrifices. People that are already dead, that when people threaten them with jail or threaten them with fines or with the loss of a job or with death, they can just laugh and say, I'm already dead. You can't hurt me. I'm just here for you. I'm just here to tell you that if you don't repent, you're going to hell. But to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And I'm ready for that. I've made peace with that in my heart. Come and let's be radical Christians together. Why do I not have any specific application? Because you've got to start with what you already know. What you already know. This, this generation right here, the march in the streets and burn things up generation, 
the renounce everything and be willing to try new frames of gender and sex and race and government, they are primed and ready for the Lord to pour out his spirit upon them. They're already radical. But what they need is God's Holy Spirit. And if we do not want to have the doors blown off of us when the Lord fills them up and they burn past us, we've got to get out ahead of this and say, Lord, we're ready. Let's go and die with Christ. Why live a normal life? Normal life is not what you've been called to. And if that's what you're after, I'm sorry, that's not what Jesus requires of you. Take up your cross and follow me. We woke up not long ago and realized we were on a mission field. I want my country back. You're not going to get it back. Just stop. Instead, step up and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. And it's time for those of us that see the possibility and truly believe that God is able to send that gospel and send that spirit and turn it all around to step up and say, no more messing around. No more thinking like them. No more doing like them. We're going to do what God has called us to do. And we're not going to care what anybody thinks. And they'll call us radicals. And they'll call us extremists. And they'll call us dangerous. And we'll smile and say, now you're getting it.